Today's scripture is Revelation 2, 8 to 11. And the angel of the church in Smyrna write, the words of the first and the last, who died and came to life. I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich, and the slander of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison, that you may be tested, and for ten days you will have tribulation. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. You may be seated. Thanks. As you're seated, let me pray for us. Father, we're grateful that we have an opportunity to gather together in the name of your son, Jesus. We are grateful to you beyond measure that you're present with us. We ask you that as we engage this text of scripture, as we consider the ideas that we find therein, that you, God, would open our eyes that we might behold Jesus. That you would open our ears, that we would hear your voice. That you would open our hearts, that we would believe, because we know, God, that in believing and trusting in all that you're doing in this world, that it will be evidenced in the work of our hands, and it's in the work of our hands that we ask you that you would glorify yourself. And the practical things that we do day to day, in this city, in our jobs, in our homes, everywhere we go, Lord, would you be glorified. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, my name is Brett. It is my joy to be opening this passage of Scripture with you today. Uh, John said last week when he was preaching that we've got a few weeks here before we enter into the season of Advent where we have kept uh, them open. We're just doing individual sermons. And um, last week, John was in Genesis chapter 22 talking about the story of Abraham and Isaac, and he did a really wonderful job and, and drew a really important distinction, I think, between the way that God tests us and the way that the enemy tempts us. And today what I want to do is build on that uh, and talk about one of the ways that we face temptation in our lives. Uh, and when we face what I want to call the cultural pressure to conform, the cultural pressure to conform. So what I want to do is just look at what Jesus had to say to the church in Smyrna, uh, which is the modern day city of Izmir in Turkey. And I want to just talk about what we see here and how we can apply it to our lives. Now, the reason this little letter to the church in Smyrna that you just heard read the reason it's so profoundly applicable to us is that they were in a wealthy city that was pressuring them to conform to the cultural values that were antithetical to the gospel of Jesus. And that's why it's so applicable, so important for us to consider what was being said there. So this morning, we're going to talk about the cultural pressure to conform. Uh, we're going to talk about burning incense to Caesar, and we're going to talk about how we can remain faithful to Jesus in any circumstance. But that's not an outline. Don't worry, I only have one point. Not an outline, just some ideas that we're going to cover, but we're talking about the cultural pressure that we feel to conform to the pattern of this age. Now, before we jump into the letter of encouragement that you just heard read, uh, which is chapter 2 in the book of Revelation, verses 9 to 11, uh, before we jump into that, I want to show you how we arrive in that text. I want to show you how we get there in Revelation chapter 2. Now, John, who was an apostle, he was one of Jesus' disciples, he wrote the Revelation, uh, he was leading the church in this region of the Roman Empire at the latter part, in the latter part of the first century. So he was leading the church in this region at this time in history, and he's writing a letter to the people who are part of that church. Now, 
at that time in history, there was a guy named Domitian who was the Roman emperor or Caesar. His name was Domitian. Historically, it's widely understood that Domitian believed he was God incarnate and that he was to be worshipped and that he was demanding, historians tell us, that he demanded to be called Lord and God by all of the subjects in the Roman Empire, including his wife, which you can imagine went over really well at home. (laughs) Of course, John, as a follower of Jesus, is going to refuse to do that, and so he then ends up in trouble. John chapter 1, verse 9. It says, I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus was on the island called Patmos on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. So the regular decree in the Roman Empire at that time was Caesar is Lord. Caesar is Lord. So when Christians begin to declare that Jesus is Lord, it's stirring all kinds of political tension up in their midst. And Jesus is Lord was a massively political statement that was being made by Christians, and it was uh, understood (laughs) to contradict the belief of the day that Caesar was Lord. Because if Jesus is Lord, the implication is that Caesar is not. The battle here is over who will be worshipped. Jesus is Lord is still a powerfully subversive political statement in many parts of the world. In fact, in some places around the world where the church is continuing to experience this kind of persecution that we see all through the Bible and all throughout Christian history, but they're experiencing the, the tribulation or pressure to conform, it's actually illegal to say Jesus is Lord. In some of these places, it's against the law. It has been forbidden that you say that Jesus is Lord. And it's the same reason that it was a problem in the first century. Because if you say that Jesus is Lord, it means the political rulers who are in control and have power over you are not. And they don't like that. So it's outlawed in several places around the world. Now, you might not believe in this Jesus is Lord thing. And that might not be your particular worldview. And you might not think that it's a particularly uh, political statement either. But someone is Lord of your life. Someone is the highest authority in your life. And for you, if it's not Jesus is Lord, it could be that the unspoken belief in your life is that you are. And I just want you to consider that there might be a better way. I want you to consider that lordship in your life may be above your pay grade. And that it's it's possible that you, in hearing this, will be challenged to consider that Christ may be Lord what that would mean for you and the implications of that. I I want you to think about this. Now, we need to understand where we are going to get to in the text. So it means we have to look at chapter 1, which I already said. I want to take you into chapter 1, verse 4. There's more going on. We need to see it. Verse 4 says, Grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come, and from the seven spirits who are before his throne, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of kings on earth. Guess who doesn't think that's a great statement? The ruler of kings on earth is not well received by the kings on earth. Jesus is the ruler of kings on earth. Domitian, the emperor of the Roman Empire, is a megalomaniac. He freaks out when Christians declared that he was not the ultimate ruler in their eyes. And so John, in leading the believers in a subversion of the emperor worship that was so popular in Smyrna and beyond, he was exiled to Patmos. 
where he received this revelation of Jesus, he writes down the message to the seven churches of Asia Minor. This is Revelation chapter 2 and 3, where we see those seven letters. Now, if you want to hint at understanding the whole book of Revelation, because some of you look like you're still a little scared, I'm going to get to stuff that you don't understand. That's okay. That's fine. The book of Revelation is meant to be unsettling. So if it's unsettling to you, you're in good company. But if you're a little bit concerned about it, you need to know that the context of Revelation is pastoral, and the subject of its message is Jesus. John is a good pastor, and he is writing a letter, a book, a revelation. He is writing to communicate to the people that he has been leading that they can be encouraged. He's trying to help them see. So the context is pastoral. The subject of the message is Jesus. And if you're reading the book of Revelation with those two things in mind, you'll be just fine. Now, Revelation chapter 1, verse 4 again. John, he's the one writing, to the seven churches that are in Asia. Grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come, and from the seven spirits who are before his throne, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead and ruler of kings on earth. To him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom, priest to his God and Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Behold, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him, and all tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. Even so, amen. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. This is the revelation about Jesus. It comes by way of Jesus, and it comes to us through John. Now, at this point, our man John is in prison on the island of Patmos. We already looked at that text. Patmos is this rocky island in the Mediterranean Sea where the Roman government used to send criminals and political troublemakers so that they could cause no more trouble. He's likely 80-plus years old at the time when he's writing this down. He's been exiled there because he refused to worship Caesar, Domitian, as his small g-god, and because he was stirring up trouble, preaching the good news of Jesus and his kingdom, and then he hears God's voice. Revelation 1 verse 9, I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus, was on the island called Patmos on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. That's why he's there. Verse 10, I was in the spirit on the Lord's day and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet saying, write what you see in a book and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus and to Smyrna and to Pergamum and to Thyatira and to Sardis and to Philadelphia and to Laodicea. And then the scene turns in his first vision. Look at verse 12. He says, then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me. And on turning, I saw seven golden lampstands, and in the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white, like white wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were burnished bronze, refined in a furnace, and his voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand, he held seven stars, and from his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun shining in full strength. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. See the vision of the exalted Jesus. It is a holy moment. The exiled prisoner, disciple of Jesus, sees his Lord exalted. It's a transformative moment. Verse 20 tells us that in the vision, the seven lampstands are the seven churches that were going to receive the letter from Jesus. 
words from the king. The thing was, and it's important we see this, the words from the king were not coming from some distant, far-off land, from some throne far away, removed from the situation of the churches. But as we read in Revelation 2 and 3, we see that the words from the king are words of intimacy and knowledge and words that identify with their temptation and their trial. The reason the words are so powerful is that the king who speaks them is King Jesus, who is not distant, but who stands in the midst of them. Verse 12 says, Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me, and on turning I saw seven golden lampstands, and in the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man. Don't miss that. He's with them. He was with them then, and he's with us today. He's not going anywhere. Christ City, the first thing we need to seek to be faithful to God in the face of the cultural pressure to conform is to have a big vision of Jesus. A vision of Jesus that transcends all of the other stuff that could be yours if you would just compromise just a little. Not just a vision of him, but a relationship with him where you see him for who he is and you know him for who he is and where you know that he is with you and that he understands you and that he will never leave you nor forsake you. If you don't have that, you can't endure the cultural pressure to conform. So I know I want to talk about the cultural pressure to conform and the things that we feel in our lives, but if you don't have a compelling transcendent vision of Jesus, you won't make it. That's why Revelation 1 starts with the vision of Jesus and then we get into the troubles. You have to have a compelling vision of Jesus. You have to have an accurate vision of Jesus. You got to know him for who he is. Now we got to focus on what he said to the church in Smyrna. He wanted them to know that he was with them in Smyrna, where apparently it was not easy to serve him. It wasn't easy to serve him because there was the cultural pressure to conform to the pattern of the age. Jesus found nothing wrong with the church in Smyrna. The letter to the church is brief, but it's very encouraging. This little letter to a suffering church, it contains only approval and comfort, which is not actually true of the rest of the letters to the churches of Asia Minor in chapter 2 and 3. Some of them, he's just rebuking them. There's nothing positive to say. Others, there's a rebuke and an, a commendation for what they're doing. But, but Smyrna, he just encourages. Verse 9 In chapter 2, it says, I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich. The question is, why was this church poor? Why were the people who made up the church of Smyrna, why were they poor? Why were they in poverty? There's a couple different words that can be used when you're talking about poverty in the Greek that we then have translated into English. The New Testament was written in Greek. There's a couple words that you could use if you're talking about poverty. And the word behind poverty here in this text is the one that means you've got nothing at all. <laughs> not like you've got just enough but no extra. It's talking about poverty like you've got nothing at all. The ancient city of Smyrna is a beautiful city. Hundreds of years earlier, it had been destroyed. And then it had been re-engineered and it had been rebuilt. It had been carefully planned. The streets were all symmetrically laid out. The streets were lined with temples to heathen gods. Running down the center of the city, there was something called the Golden Street, which ended at the mountain where the Temple of Zeus stood. So you could go down the street and there's the mountain. 
From an aesthetic viewpoint, we're told that it was a very scenic city. It was very beautiful, kind of like Vancouver. It was also a political and religious city, kind of like Vancouver. It was a leading city in the province, kind of like Vancouver. You weren't with me on it. Smyrna was about 55 kilometers north of Ephesus, and it had a thriving port. It was situated on a major road, and so because of its geography, uh, it was a major business center where the first century population, the historians think of, 200,000 people, which is huge. It was a thriving port city involved in import and export. It was a beautiful, wealthy, and very proud city. Kind of like Vancouver. On its coins were stamped the words, first city of Asia in size and beauty. That's the kind of thing we would stamp on a coin if we had our own coins in our city. Honestly, first city in Canada in not size but beauty. We'd think of something else to throw in there as well. City of Smyrna took pride in being first, which gives us a little insight into why Jesus reveals himself as the first and the last. And then additionally, because the way that the city had been destroyed and re-engineered and rebuilt, in, in Daryl Johnson's commentary on this, he talks about the fact that they were proud of their life from death experience. Giving further insight into why Jesus revealed himself not only as the first and the last, but also as the one who died and came to life. Look at it in verse 8. And to the church of the, uh, and to the angel of the church in Smyrna write the words of the first and the last, who died and came to life. See, when Jesus is speaking to his people, he does not waste any words. They all count. And sometimes they count in a profound way if you know the people that he's writing to. So again, they were living in this city. It's rich. It's beautiful. Why are the Christian people in poverty? What's going on? Was it because they had somehow failed God and they'd walked in a way that was not worthy of their calling and he had not blessed them? No. Jesus says he is in their midst and that they're beloved. So so what is going on? Look at verse 9 again. He says, I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich. The Greek word translated to tribulation here essentially means pressure. Um, But more rightly, it means crushing pressure. There's a guy named William Barclay who says the Greek word slipsis would evoke in the mind of first century people the picture of a person being tortured to death by being slowly crushed by a great boulder laid upon him. (laughs) That's the most visceral definition of a word you're ever going to hear. This word would evoke in the minds of a first century hearer the image of someone laying down and being tortured and crushed by a great boulder being laid on them. That paints a picture. It's the kind of pressure that this church was dealing with. The disciples here were living out their faith under the crushing pressure of the culture around them. Now, you got to hear me. The only people who are in tribulation or in affliction because of their faith are those who have remained faithful to Jesus. They weren't poor because they somehow walked away from Jesus. They were experiencing tribulation because they were walking with Jesus. People who are not faithful to Jesus, don't get persecuted. You realize that, right? If they just go along to get along, why would there be any persecution of them? 
They're subservient to a different master. There was cultural pressure to conform, and the church in Smyrna didn't. The cultural pressure to conform came from those who engaged in Caesar worship. The emperor cult was especially strong in this city, and they'd even won the approval of the Roman government to build a temple there. This is what Jay Lockhart said. At first, Caesar worship was an idea. Caesar is Lord and God, people said. It was sort of an informal worship of Caesar. With, a, with the passing of time, it became formalized. Statues of the Caesar were erected throughout the Roman Empire. Altars were constructed. If one was to participate in Roman life, even in buying and selling in the marketplace, it was mandatory that he come before the statue of Caesar, burn a pinch of incense upon the altar, and proclaim Caesar as Lord and God. He was given a certificate that indicated that he had worshipped Caesar. That certificate gave him the right to go into the marketplace to buy and sell, get a job, and participate in Roman life in other ways. Now I want you to note something. It wasn't mandatory that people worship Caesar. According to the government, not mandatory. One scholar said this was something that was imposed by the citizens uh, upon the citizens of Smyrna. It was imposed on them by the cultural elites who had something to gain by cozying up to Domitian and the Roman authorities. Now, I want you to think about this in light of your public life. I want you to think about this in light of where you work, where you're educated, and the institutions that you are participating in. Presumably, the Christians in Smyrna refused this cultural conformity to the spirit of the age, and because of that, they faced this tribulation, this crushing pressure to conform. And because they were facing this, faithfulness to Jesus, they were in poverty. Why were they in poverty? Well, they weren't going to worship Caesar just so they could have access to the markets to buy and sell. They refused to compromise their faith in Jesus as a means of getting ahead in their careers. The question is, what, what pressure are you facing today? Where are you tempted to offer a pinch of incense to Caesar? A pinch of incense to the cultural pressures we face. Rod Dreher said, The temptation to sell out the faith for the sake of self-protection is by no means an abstract threat. We may not yet be at the point where Christians are forbidden to buy and sell in general without state approval, but we are on the brink of entire areas of commercial and professional life being off limits to believers whose consciences will not allow them to burn incense to the gods of our age. So high school students, college students, university students, where do your teachers and professors and peers want you to bow to the cultural pressure and compromise your convictions in the lordship of Jesus and in the authority of scripture as the rule of life and faith for all Christians? Where are you feeling that? Parents, where is this pressure as you raise your kids? Where do you see it? Where do you feel it? Medical professionals and teachers and professors and lawyers and artists and psychologists and social workers and software engineers, where are you feeling this? Those of you who work in the municipal, provincial, or federal government, do you feel this? Bankers and salespeople and tradespeople who are working for corporations who have different social values and agendas than you, where, where are you being asked to burn a pinch of incense to the gods of the age? Medical professionals, 
Will you support assisted suicide and abortion? How about gender reassignment surgery for preteens? Teachers, will you uphold a curriculum that demands the disintegration of gender as we understand it? Professors, will you be silenced in your convictions so that you might gain tenure in your institution? Lawyers, if the law society says that your Christian faith is actually an obstacle to justice in our province, what will you do? Software engineers, are you willing to create platforms with addictive design or social validation features that we know are very harmful to young people? Artists, if having your work included in that show or playing at that festival requires you to wholeheartedly and publicly affirm every LGBTQ agenda item that there is, what will you say? What are you willing to say to get into that space? Social workers is a traditional understanding of sexuality and family an obstacle to someone fostering or adopting under the authority of the government. Government workers, what do you have to affirm or deny in order to keep your job? See, not all of these pressures are here yet. But when they come, my question to you is, will you burn a pinch of incense to Caesar or will you be commended by Jesus for your poverty? Bankers and salespeople and tradespeople, I know you feel this because the companies that you work for who sponsor particular agendas and particular events, you get looked at weird when you don't wear the pin or add your banner to your profile and you don't participate in the parade. I know that. Every one of the examples that I've just given comes out of a life-on-life -life conversation I have personally had as a pastor of this church. It's not theoretical to you. I get that. I have a name I could attach to every single one of those things I just said. <laughs> the easiest place in the entire city of Vancouver to be a Christian is right here from about to about here. Probably as far, if I get real crazy, as far back as here and over to here and then kind of up. It's right here, it's the easiest place in the whole city to be a Christian. I know that because I used to have a real job too. Before I was a pastor, I had a real job. And in my real job, I encountered people on a daily basis who were in conflict with my worldview. They were in conflict with my faith and the implications of my faith as it relates to the values that I live by and the moral agenda that I hold. But I loved it because I was always around people who I had an opportunity to share the gospel with. And remaining faithful is one of those things that stands out. It's one of those things that's like shining light in the darkness. The question you're going to have to wrestle with is, do you have to be blank, fill in your trained profession, in order to serve Jesus? Because in Smyrna, if you wanted to serve in one of the trade guilds, you would have to go burn a little pinch of incense to Caesar, get the certificate, and then you could go be the silversmith or you could go be the whatever. But you got to go do that first. Therefore, they were impoverished. See, last week John talked about Abraham and Isaac. And in the story of God testing Abraham and the way that God tests us and how that is different than the way that the enemy tempts us. But in the story of Abraham being tested by God, it graciously and mercifully all works out really well, right? 
It does. What if the story for the testing in your life is just poverty? That's the outcome. It wouldn't be that bad. Because you know that you have a life to live beyond this. What if the call in the next 25 years in the city of Vancouver is for Christians to just live in poverty? Bearing witness to the truth of the gospel because they're not going to compromise their convictions just to get a seat at the table. What, what, what would that look like? It would be fine. It'd be fine. But you have to wrestle with that now. When that temptation comes in the future, you need to know where you land. Now, about 60 years after John wrote Revelation, one of his disciples, one of the disciples that John had made, was, was having to decide what he was going to do about Caesar worship and what he was going to do with the cultural pressure to conform. This guy had been arrested, and he was being threatened with his very life. It was all happening in the context of the same city. He was the bishop of Smyrna, same as Polycarp. He was a disciple of John who wrote Revelation. And in Polycarp's day, just like today, there was an easy way out of this situation if you wanted one. Listen to this from Timothy George. He says, For 86-year-old Polycarp on Sunday, February 23rd, in the year 155, it was simple. The proconsul offered him a way out. Just take a pinch of incense and place it on the altar of the imperial deity. Simple gesture, symbolic, that's all. Then you can go on worshiping Jesus all you like. We'll check you off our list. The proconsul said to Polycarp, take the oath and I'll let you go. Revile Christ. But Polycarp said, for 80 and six years have I been his servant and he has done me no wrong and how can I now blaspheme my king who saved me? Polycarp offered a prayer in the name of the triune God and then he was bound. The wood was lit. Like Jesus who was crucified naked, Polycarp entered the flames without his clothes. But when they saw that his body could not be consumed by fire, the executioner was ordered to stab him with a dagger. And so the ground of Smyrna was made holy by the blood of the martyr. Christ City, a pinch of incense to appease the cultural pressure of the day is serious business. When I think of Polycarp, I can't help but think of how he would have been formed by the words of Jesus to John, written down in this book. Revelation 2. In verse 10, it says, Be faithful unto death, and I'll give you the crown of life. I can't help but think of how. Polycarp would have heard that from the guy who wrote the book. The guy who had the vision, who Jesus said, write this down, and he wrote it down. Somehow, I just can't help but think how he would have been formed by this. Be faithful unto death and I'll give you the crown of life. Christ City, this is about knowing that there is a way to be faithful to Jesus in every circumstance. You go, how? How can you do this? How can you be faithful? <laughs> well, it's John's vision of Jesus. Look at Revelation 1.12. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me, and on turning I saw seven golden lampstands, and in the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man. <laughs> you see where he stood? He stood in the midst. 
It's the same word that John used in his gospel when he wrote about the resurrected Jesus coming and standing with them on the first Easter Sunday, the day of his resurrection, when they were afraid and they didn't know what to do when they were meeting together with the doors locked. It says in John chapter 20, verse 19, on the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them, said to them, peace be with you. The word translated in the midst in Revelation 1 is the same as the word translated stood among them in, Revelation, in John 20. And from this moment in John 20 all the way through to the moment that he said this in Revelation chapter 2, Jesus never left them. And Jesus promises that he's with us now forever to the end of the age, that he'll never leave us nor forsake us. Christ said he never left them. John, the disciple of Jesus, was in that locked room on the day of Jesus' resurrection when they didn't know where he was gone and he showed up and stood among them. And it's John who's writing this to the church in Smyrna. And he sees the seven golden lampstands, the seven churches. And where's Jesus? In the midst of them. When John sees a vision of Jesus with his church, Jesus is standing at the center. So how can we remain faithful to Jesus in any circumstance? It's to remember that he knows, that he understands, and that he is with us in the moment of trial. He was in the midst of the churches then, and he's in the midst of the church now. And when you feel the cultural pressure all might be too much, I just want you to remember and to never forget that Jesus was also pressed. He knows. The night before he was crucified, Jesus was in the Garden of Gethsemane. It was literally called the place of pressing. And he wrestled in prayer, and he was pressed between his will and his Father's will. He wrestled in prayer with the gap between his will and the gap of his Father's will. There was what he wanted to do, which was an easier way out. And there was what his father had called him to do, which was infinitely more difficult. But in the end, as he wrestled in the tension and the pressure between his will and the will of his father, he ends up saying, not as I will, but as you will. He says, not what I will, but what you will. Jesus understands the pressure his church is feeling. And when he knelt and prayed in the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus chose obedience to his father's will for your sake and for mine. That we might know that when the pressure mounts and when the temptations feel too much, that no matter what we are going through, that because we are in Christ, we too can conquer and be faithful unto death and then receive the crown of life. It is only when you hold on to a big vision of Jesus that you are going to be able to work through the challenges that you're going to face on a daily basis. I don't know where things are going. I don't know what it's going to look like. I know that there are many around the world who are facing this already. Some of you probably know them. What I do know is that we can make it if we keep our eyes on Jesus. If your eyes are on Jesus, you can go through anything he calls you to go through, and you can do so faithfully. You take your eyes off of him, it's going to be very difficult. I know 
that there is nothing in this world that can separate us from the love of God in Christ. No tribulation. No trial. Nothing in this world can separate us from the love of God that is in Christ. When you know that, when you are assured of that, and when you keep your eyes on Jesus, he will allow you to step with his peace into the midst of all the challenges of life. Can you imagine what it looks like when a group of people decide they're going to be faithful? I think it's a glorious thing. Would you stand as we respond today?